0: Are you watching the current Australian political dialogue and asking where is the accountability for those in power? Where is the planning and policy that reflects the science around climate change? Where are the innovative ideas and the leadership required to make sure we maintain our incredible quality of life in a world that doesn't want to buy our coal anymore? If those questions have crossed your mind in the last few years, you may be very interested in my conversation with Kylie Tink. She's the independent federal candidate contesting the coalition incumbent seat in North Sydney. But before we get into that and the show, I am gonna have to play some ads. If you would like to hear a version of the show without ads, there is one out there and I'd love you to hear it you can get access to the exclusive ad-free feed by supporting us at patreon.com slash osher. There's a few tiers that are available to you and uh, even the lowest tiers are ad-free. Starts at five bucks a month. So if you listen to this show and you go, yep, if I saw him in the street, I'd buy him a cup of coffee, around about five bucks, depending on where you are in the world. That's it, that's the price. And it would really help us out here at the show. So until you get to hear it without ads, here are some ads or not.
2: My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner
1: with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com
2: slash weight loss. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. really big issues facing us who are we what do we stand for what do we want to stand for into the future if we can look at this moment in time and go you know what we're now prepared to say we're a nation that's actually 65,000 years old we are a nation that does believe in equality for all we are a nation that believes in innovation and you know not settling for a status quo and we're going to embrace everything that's going to be to me that's the role of a really strong healthy federal government, lead, show us where we're going, provide us with some guide rails to get us there, coordinate. So, you know, where you can find who's doing it best and then leverage it. Let's not all keep having to make the same mistakes. And then, where necessary, provide funding to stimulate. And if that was what our federal government was doing, lead, coordinate, stimulate, I think we'd be a completely different country.
0: That's Kylie Tank. Who is running up against the incumbent coalition member as the independent candidate for North Sydney in the upcoming federal election? And this is better than yesterday. G'day, welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is a tri-weekly podcast that is just designed to help you make today better than yesterday. Something that you hear on this show and every show is guaranteed to make your day better than yesterday and it has done since 2013. I am Osha Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. What else am I? I'm a hip exercise rehab guy. I'm a failing miserably to try and get uh, my toddler to transition from his cot into the big bed uh, guy right now. And uh, Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest and Fridays, I'm here with you. I'm actually going to be with you in Melbourne and Brisbane. The podcast is going on the road. We are coming to Brisbane and Melbourne Melbourne's on sale right now, Brisbane's on sale March 8th. I'll tell you more later in the show, but if you wanna get your Melbourne tickets right now, you can go to com and get those tickets right now. I'll tell you more later in the show. My guest this week on Better Than Yesterday is Kylie Tank. She's the former CEO of the McGrath Foundation and most recently was the CEO of Camp Quality. However, before those roles worked at the very highest levels of communications consultancy, essentially working with governments on their communications strategies uh, all around the world. That job took her to many places, including to the Pentagon, where she famously went toe to toe, face to face with Donald Rumsfeld when she questioned him on his justification for the US invasion into Iraq, not long after there were boots on the ground there. It's an incredible story and I can't wait for you to hear it. That's just one of the absolutely ass-kicking stories that are on this show today, including one uh, where she describes an interaction she had with Peter Dutton while she was the CEO of the McGrath Foundation. Absolutely brilliant because it shows that you may be an independent member, but you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. She's clearly got all of the tools she needs to more than hold her ground in the houses of parliament here in Australia. Now I'm stoked to have Kylie on the podcast today, even though I can't actually vote for her. She sits in another federal seat and I I can't vote for that seat, but she is one of a number of women who are all running as independents in this upcoming federal election. And there is a bit of a common thread with these women. They're all very successful. They have all got extensive, high-level, world-class experience at the highest reaches of private enterprise and government policy. And they're, I guess, kind of running on broadly common platforms of accountability of our leaders science based policy around climate change and a a generally economically conservative, but uh, socially progressive. Kylie is running up against the incumbent coalition member as the independent candidate for North Sydney. Now you may not be able to vote for her in your electorate. I can't vote for her, but if what she's talking about does resonate with you, look at your electorate, reach out to your MP, let them know that your vote is conditional your votes conditional if they meet certain criteria around whatever is that is important to you if your local federal member is say, from a party that demands their members vote along party lines i know what that's like your local member may go oh yes i this is a fantastically ambitious climate reduction target that'd be brilliant but when it comes time to actually vote they vote exactly the same as someone who's looking forward to a career in the fossil fuel industry once their political life is over. And for me, that's not okay. So I would never tell you who to vote for, but I'm just telling you how I feel and that I guess voting for someone who's thinking about 30, 40, 50, 80 years from now has probably never been more important in your or my lifetime. And this is it. I'm stoked that is on the show today and I would ask you to consider to perhaps use this conversation to hear what a truly independent candidate sounds like when they speak about policy that is inclusive of all the people of our country, not just the people who sit in their tightly held seats that get car parks or whatever funding malarkey is going on. If you would like to hear more independent candidates, you can listen to my conversations with Helen Haynes, the member for Indi, or Zali Stegel, who's the member for Oringa. They are in the podcast feed, just scroll on back and you can listen to them. However, for now, please enjoy getting to know the absolutely brilliant Kylie Tank. <music> nice to see you. Thank you. Lovely to see you. I know you're very busy. So, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Grateful that I can speak to you because, Kylie, I guess I didn't do very well in high school and I I did some after school education, but I think I fit into the rest of the country of like, I kind of have an idea about politics. But I've definitely noticed that you are one of a cohort of powerful, successful, incredibly smart, driven economically conservative, socially progressive women running independently in this election. And I'm fascinated that there's so many, uh, someone up in Toowoomba, someone here in my electorate, yourself, there's a few around the country. And I, I think it's A, brilliant, and B, I'm just kind of wanting to kind of get stuck in and kind of dig into why you, why now which is really interesting, because it's a this is a really important election. Every they say that every time, but this one's Mm-mm. really important. Where are you right now, Kylie?
2: In terms of physically, I'm yeah. actually in my office in Crow's Nest in um North Sydney, in the electorate of North Sydney. So we got premises <laughs> just before Christmas. So wow. we became it made it feel really real once we had someone yeah. to call home for the campaign. Yeah. So
0: as someone that grew up in Brisbane. Before I moved to Sydney, Crow's Nest was just a place that you sent your funniest home videos of VHS to. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I had no idea it well, was an con- actual place. <laughs> Considering I grew up in a small country town called Coonababarin out in <laughs> northwest New South Wales, um, I think my impression of that was pretty much the same, to be honest, Osha. It was yeah. all about the Saturday morning, you know, cartoons yeah. and hoping that you could get a letter read out loud one weekend. That's but-
0: right. Kids, were talking about a time when you would watch television to watch your get your youth content and then you would write a letter, you would put pen to paper, put it in another piece of folded up paper, pop it in a metal box somewhere in your suburb. Someone would then pick that up, put it in a van, drive it across the country and give it to the person on TV. Now we can just tweet. Sophie Lee. I don't know where <laughs> Sophie Lee is, but now we. <laughs> ah. Wow, Coonabarabran. That's a very different city these days. I've been through it not too long ago. It is like apparently where all of the warehouses and trucks in the world live.
2: Ah. <laughs> you know, I think so. It's interesting. So I was born and bred in Coonabarabran. Wow. My mum and dad are still out there. So Coonabarabran, for people who don't know, it's about six hours northwest of Sydney. So you head out in New South Wales towards Dubbo and somewhere between Dubbo and Tamworth and Moree, you'll find Coonababran. It's a population of 3,001, I understand, from the last census, which actually was cause for much celebration because for the last 50 years it's been 3,000 and it's finally grown by one. But it's actually an amazing, amazing community, you know, because it's a very resilient community. I think for me... My parents were really young when I was born. So my mum was only 17, 18 and my dad, you know, was only 21. And I think from a very, very early age, what I learned was that if something was broken and needed to be fixed, or if something needed to get done in the community, the fastest way to get it done was just to step up and do it, you know, and to work with others around you. So While it's a small town, it actually bats well above its weight for the things that it's achieved. You know, it was one of the first towns to have proper tennis courts that weren't just dirt or grass out west. It has had an amazing academic track record with little Coonababra you know, infant school, primary school and high school. They do really well every year. And it's really been a town that has literally survived through the droughts and fires and and just keeps kind of getting back up and, and pulling itself into being. So, yeah, I left Kunabaran when I was 18 because I needed to leave to go to university. But even though I was only there for the first 18 years of my life, I think it's fundamentally informed who I am as a person
0: you've got kids, I've got kids, you can tell. Like the first five years is really that writes the source code. You know, that's the OS yeah. and it's very hard. You either get born Mac or PC and it's very hard to, to change systems <laughs> later in life because that all that stuff is written before the age of five. So, of course, you're forever touched by that sense of get it done, do it yourself, get mm. together, find someone who can help. There's no one else around. Superman's not coming, we better do it. And that's a really great quality to instill in your children and to then kind of leave. When you got out of Coonabarabram, what big smoke did you head to and what was that like?
2: Yeah, so actually I guess finishing high school for me was the first big zag in my life and it probably has then gone on to set up what the last... 30 years of my life has been like, you know, the opportunities come into my life, Osher, and I tend to step into them because I feel like it's the right thing to do, but it may not have been what I'd planned. So the plan when I finished high school was to come to Sydney and study commerce law at Sydney University. I was all lined up to have flat share with friends. It was all, you know, locked and loaded. And I had the opportunity to do an exchange program to Scandinavia between high school and starting university. So, you know, I got loaded onto this plane from this small country town, flew 38 hours <laughs> to literally the other side of the world and landed and nobody spoke English. Yeah. <laughs> so it really went from one extreme to the other. And I think what it did though, was It just blew my mind in terms of a human being's capacity to reinvent yourself. And there's no definition of who you are if you show up somewhere completely new. So I had this amazing experience for three months overseas. And when I came back, I came back with this attitude that, no, I was ready to keep pushing myself that way. And I didn't just want to go back to being the Kylie that had grown up in Coonabarabra and living with her friends in Sydney. So I shocked my family, ditched Sydney Uni, moved to Canberra, which I'd never been to before to study down there. And, you know, I think from there, it really just, life just got bigger and bigger for me.
0: Can I ask what part of Scandinavia you ended up in?
2: A place called Finland.
0: Okay. So (laughs) Finland's a very interesting place. I'm guessing this is kind of mid-90s that you ended up there?
2: Oh, you are very kind. It was actually 88, oh, okay. 89. Yeah. So
0: still very dangerously close to Russia. And oh, yes. People were very like, eh, the whole Soviet Union's falling to bits. Uh, they might do something in desperation. So it would have been pretty intense. When you got to Finland, like a completely different environment, snow, freezing, cold, more clothes you've ever worn in your life at one time. No one speaks the word of English. You look like them, so they're all talking to you like, how come you don't understand me? Government social policy. When you got up close, how much was your mind blown by the role of government and society there?
2: Well, I think to your point, Osha, it was just so different from anything I had ever experienced. And, you know, in that era, there was still a very heightened sense of not just fear, but actually injustice directed towards what was then called the USSR. Because as far as the Finns were concerned, and I think it is still the case today, you know, Russia had moved in. When you look at Finland on a map, It used to be shaped like a woman, so it has a head with two arms and then a skirt on the bottom of it. But the Russians actually moved in and took one of her arms, so they invaded, occupied, and still maintain it today. And for me, when I was there, there was lots of talk about the fact that there was this... Massive crime had been committed against the people of Finland. So they have compulsory military service over there. You know, when you finish high school, I don't know if they still do, but when I was there, when you finished high school, you had to go and give 12 months to military service. Very structured, you know, high-quality living because everything was basically provided. You know, you had a baby... When you were pregnant, you used to receive, and this is going to sound like nothing to people today, but there was this $400 box of stuff would show up at the front door, you know, for a family. And when they opened the box, it would be the pram, the cot, a year's supply worth of nappies. Everything you could possibly need to raise that child was delivered to you. And then you were told there'd be care. There were carers coming to your home. It's a much more, as you said, socially driven community. What
0: I love about the box story, and I've, 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 this is often brought up in the work that I've done, you know, the aforementioned post-high school work that I've done over in Amsterdam, I did some business school work over there. The box, as far as social policy, the, the Finland baby box is often brought up because, yes, it's this government-provided cardboard box, and, yes, it has everything that you think are on your shopping list, and you, people don't have to worry about it because, like, it just comes up. But it's also this great leveller because mm. the box Well, guess what it's the perfect size for? It doubles as a crib. And there's these, I I saw this whole, you know, someone was presenting a pitch deck on, on this social policy. And there's this whole pitch deck of all these pictures of little babies from socioeconomic backgrounds of people who are maybe on the lower socioeconomic spectrum and people who are like, we take private jets to where we're gonna go for holidays. Every one of their babies spent their first three or four months in this box. So there was no division. Every little kid in Finland for decades has spent the first 12, 16 weeks of their life sleeping in a box, no matter how much money your parents make. And it's this amazing kind of equalizer, you know? Yeah,
2: As you sort of touched on, I do look, you know, like I could be Scandinavian. I'm blonde, blue-eyed, I'm six foot tall, you know, it would be lovely for me to find out actually that I have heritage <laughs> with the Vikings. My mother did tell me recently actually that the guy who plays Ragnar, Ragnar in the Vikings, he's actually like my mother's second cousin oh. We've worked out he's a pattern. So, you know, but I think that was the other thing I experienced was Finnish is like no language you've ever heard it sounds like birds tweeting. So while (laughs) I think you can probably land in somewhere like Italy or France or Spain and kind of half muff through a conversation, in Finnish, nothing made sense. And exactly as you said, people would walk up to me at a bar and start talking to me and I knew enough to turn around and kind of go, excuse me, or, you know, pardon me, or, and, and, then I'd realise they had no idea I wasn't Finnish and I'd have to go, no, 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 really, I'm not Finnish. I only speak English. And then, of course, people would be going, oh, you're so rude. You know, like, why don't you want to talk to me now? <laughs> but um, it's definitely changed since then. You know, I, I say they don't speak English, but they spoke Swedish, they spoke Russian, you know, most of them were bi, tri, quad. Oh, well,
0: Yeah. But that all, yeah. Come, that all comes from, you know, where you grow up. If we grew up speaking different languages, different people when we were little, as we talked earlier, when we were really young, our brain just absorbs it differently. When yeah. you when you came back to Australia, mm. what was it particularly about your Finnish experience that went, None nah, nah, our commerce is not it, policy, government, Canberra, that's got to be it. What was it that drove you that direction?
2: Well, actually, to be honest, the, the reason I went to Canberra is because I I had only ever been there once before in my life. And nobody that I knew from school was going there. So Ah. it was, for me, it was more about the fact that it, again, it was fresh space to go and kind of continue to explore what it meant to be me, you know? And so I, when I transferred to ANU, I actually, I got into the commerce part of the commerce law. They couldn't fit me into the commerce law. So I started in commerce, moved into campus and proceeded to have just, the best year of my life I had so much fun and met so many incredible people which was great for me socially but academically I got to the end of my first year and I failed three out of four subjects not an
0: uncommon story and it's okay (laughs) it's important that kids understand it's fine it's It's often the case
2: yeah well and I think you know it's interesting because for me it became really evident really quickly when I started studying that commerce wasn't going to be the direction for me you know I remember sitting in an economics lecture and the professor spending all this time teaching us about this thing called Kasean theory. Kasean theory, yeah. right. And literally, it was four lectures or something, and I was very, very diligently studying. And then we got to the end of it, and he basically said, "Now you can forget all that because it doesn't work. <laughs> and I was like, what am I doing here? You know, like, and so... Perhaps not surprisingly at the end of my first year I got invited to appear in front of the academic board to make an argument as to why I should be allowed to remain in university and I was away on holidays in a place called Lennox Head up on the north coast with my grandmother so my grandmother's played a massive part in my life growing up because my parents were so young but anyway I was talking to my gran about the fact that I'd basically been expelled from uni and I didn't know what to do and God bless her. She turned to me and she said, I don't know why you're wasting your time in accountancy. Like this was the eighties and nineties. Everybody was trying to get into commerce and make money. And she um, turned to me and she said, I think you should go into public relations. And I was like, really? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, why? And she said, oh, because you love talking to people and you love listening to people. I think you should do public relations. And so Even though I still appeared in front of the academic board at ANU, I reached out to what was then the University of Canberra, spoke to their head of the communications school there and basically begged my way into the course that was the communications course. And the guy at the time, a guy called Malcolm Bodley, took my call and said, no, you can't come. We're oversubscribed. We're too full. But mind you, I'm making the call from a phone booth in Lennox Head, yeah? So I'm feeding the coins. And then at the end of the conversation, he goes, you know what? He said, you've got one shot write something for me, post it to me, I'll read it, call me at the same time in seven days' time from this phone box and I'll let you know whether you're in or not. And so I wrote the story of my grandmother and and the role that these strong women had had in my life, sent it to Malcolm, called him seven days later and he picked up the phone, bang on the dot, and said, Kylie, and this is, again, before caller ID, and I was like, yes, and he said, right, be in my lecture theatre front row on this date and if you miss a single lecture... I will hunt you down. So I ended up transferring to communications and yeah, my grandmother, she picked it for me. The irony to that whole story, Osha, is to the day she passed away, my grandmother actually didn't understand what I did because I used to write media releases and press releases to get them into the paper. And I'd tell my grandmother what I was working on. And every single time she'd call me the morning after the paper was published and go, Kylie, Some other person's taken your story and put their name to it. This is wrong. (laughs) You you have to call them and get it retracted. Welcome
0: to the world of journalism, Nan. (laughs) They've got four articles to get out by the end of the day and they don't have time to write it. They'll copy and paste eight paras, put their byline on it and go to lunch.
2: Yeah, but somehow this woman who, even though she didn't really understand what it was that she was telling me what to do, she did direct me into... Wow you know, what has gone on to be the basis of everything I've done since, which is, a, you know, a grounding in communications. That's,
0: that's marvellous. People may know your name because of your work with the M- McGrath Foundation. Mm. And obviously now it's a huge, very, very visible part of the Australian summer mm. is the, the big pink day at the cricket. How did your journey with the McGrath Foundation begin?
2: Yeah, again, it's so then this is another zag in my life. So I was working for the largest privately owned international public relations firm in the world, a firm called Edelman. And I'd started with them as a junior consultant with another company actually that they'd acquired. But let's say I'd started as a junior in like, must have been 90 six and by the time I got to two so four years later I was the head of a practice for that consulting firm. Four years later I was the managing director for their Sydney office. Four years later I was in their Asia Pacific team and part of the global management team for Edelman. And part of what I'd done in that last couple of years working with Edelman has been part of a global project looking at how our, how we would approach corporate social responsibility, which was a sort of an emerging area of corporate Capacity in the early 2000s. And one of the agreements we'd come up to was that every market would take on board an appropriate number of charities that they would provide pro bono support for. So here in Australia, because I was running the operations, we took on two, we took on the Barados Foundation. And then we took on the McGrath Foundation because it had literally, Jane had launched it in 2005 off the back of her breast cancer experience. So from 2005 through till 2007, we provided basic PR pro bono support for them. Fast forward to 2008 then, and actually I'd resigned from my role at Edelman in Australia and I was on the way moving to either Singapore or New York. Our family was packing up our house and staying with the company, but actually going into a global role. I had come to the end of my maternity leave for my third child. So I have a son who's 19, a daughter who's 17, and another one who's just turned 14. And I was still on mat leave when Jane passed away. So Jane passed away in the June of 2008. We knew she'd been unwell. Um, I had had conversations with the foundation after I'd finished up with Edelman where they'd actually asked me to come on board but I just never I'd never aspired to work in the not-for-profit space. You know, I was really happy in the commercial environment, doing incredible things, having amazing experiences, you know, arguments with people like Condoleezza Rice's chief of staff, heated conversations with Donald Rumsfeld in the Pentagon about Christ, why what? Australia. <laughs> well, with Donald Rumsfeld, it was about how had we ended up going into the Middle East. And the questions I'd asked him, it was in a private meeting with myself and four, other of our country heads. And, you know, this was at the stage where we were starting to go, well, where are these weapons of mass destruction that you've told us are there? And and I asked him a couple of questions and he just looked at me and he's like, you have to be from Australia. <laughs> I was like, why? And he said, well, only an Australian would ask these questions of me. You know, like you're being very direct, very blunt.
0: Wait, 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 wait. Okay. I, I really want to get to the and it's really important because I, I know you have a very personal connection with Jane yes. McGrath and the, her end of life and how you began with that, but yeah. I cannot let this moment go by because <laughs> you're running as an independent candidate. People may have an idea about the experience level of an independent candidate or it, it's someone from just an average person who's just decided I'm going to have a run. Wait a second. You are in a room with Donald fucking Rumsfeld at the height of – You know, Australia's already committed troops. There's probably, we've probably already lost lives. You know, we have billions on the way to more in the hole for, you know, this war, which we now know how it ended up. It started to smell fishy early. You're sitting in the room with Darth Vader himself. You're there. Hang on, let me just understand. Your capacity there, you're still working for the PR firm? So I was still working
2: for Edelman. Yeah. So Edelman, as I said, is the largest independently owned public relations firm in the world. Yes. And they have done in the time that that agency's existed, some incredible things. They do a thing called the Edelman Trust Barometer, which is presented at the Davos World Expo every yeah. year.
0: Yeah, it's like the Easter show for countries Correct. and finance companies. Correct. Yeah,
2: Part of the business actually supported Hillary um, Rodham Clinton in one of her early runs into the centre. So it's an incredibly sophisticated and... I would say globally active firm and so what had happened is we had gathered as all of the country leaders in Washington for a meeting about how our business was going to proceed and what our priorities were and actually Osha, I'm going to I'm going to share two stories with you because I actually think they're really really relevant. The first of them was we had a session where all of our country heads were in this room and Condoleezza Rice's chief of staff came to talk to us about how businesses were evolving across the Asia Pacific region and into China and into India. And in that week prior to that, there had been a front cover article from the Times magazine basically predicting that by 2020, the American economy would be in decline and it would be the Indian and the Chinese economies that would be taking over the world.
0: I was living in America at the time. I remember the cover. I remember people like, what is this bullshit? And who are these people? And fuck them. Let's set every (laughs) newsstand on. They couldn't, they wouldn't accept it as real.
2: Correct. So Condoleezza Rice's chief of staff comes into this meeting to tell us this is not real. This is not going to happen. And so because we were looking to expand our, we were trying to expand our business into China at the time. So Edelman was having its own challenges about how do you do business in a country that just does not do business like you've done it everywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. And we were exchanging ideas, exchanging thoughts. And anyway, at the end of it, one of my other country heads stood up and they said, look, we just, what are you advocating here? And the chief of staff turned around and said, Look, basically, it's going to be okay because we're going to teach China and India how to do business. <laughs> so we are going to show them how to do business. So by 2020, they'll be doing business our way. And I kid you not, Osha, there was this moment where the head of our Indian operations stood up, very well spoken Indian man, and he just looked this guy straight in the eye and he said, With all due respect, by 2020, if you're not doing business our way, you'll be out of business. And it was this real moment for me of reckoning that here is part of the world that didn't want to move, was not going to acknowledge that it may have to move. And here were these emerging countries that were saying, we don't care. You're either on this bus or you're off this bus. We're going to keep driving. So that was a really seminal moment for me because I got to see this very early insight into what is the you know, when a country gets into a position where it's unable to see outside itself, you know, when you become the source inside the jar and you're not looking at the labelling from the outside, you can't evolve. The conversation then with Donald Rumsfeld actually happened because we went to the Pentagon and had a tour of the Pentagon and looked at, you know, how it worked. And, you know, that was all about how you get maximum efficiencies out of teams, speedy communication across divisions. And I happened to have the opportunity to sit and have a, you know, basically there were four or five of us, four country heads, um, one-on-one conversation with Donald Rumsfeld. And I did say to him, "I don't understand why we're we there. Where's your evidence? And can we talk about why was it just so easily assumed by you as an American that we would follow?" And I was asking not from a place of arrogance. I was sincerely wanting to understand what it was about the relationship between our two countries that made the Americans so certain that we would follow regardless of where they stepped and yeah it was a fascinating conversation but that you know at the heart of it he called me out and said you must be an Australian because only an Australian would like basically dare to challenge me (laughs) in this
0: way. (laughs) So I'm guessing this is 2005, 2006, yeah. right? Yeah so, yeah. so they're two years in, and if you remember anything about the history of the the, the Second Gulf War, they were just pouring money mm. and troops and weapons and firepower and destruction, mm. doubling down and doubling down and doubling down on this myth. We now understand mm. that mm. we have to go in because Saddam has weapons of mass destruction, mm. and so he would have known when you asked him that it was all bullshit mm. and he would have known that there at that point had been hundreds, if not by then thousands, mm. of American lives and thousands of Iraqi lives lost mm. because of that lie. Mm. Far, I I can't believe that you looked him in the eye and asked him that.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> anyways, I think it was, I never saw myself being a politician, Osha. Like it was, this has not been on my long-term I don't know that I've had long-term career goals, but I didn't foresee this happening. So for me, I was sincerely, as I said, curious. I wanted to understand what was it about this dynamic that enabled this to happen. And I think I wanted to have an honest answer from him. Like I wanted him to just say, we've gone in after the oil. You know, it's all about (laughs) what, you know, like actually... There's no weapons, but we really can't afford to not have really easy access to that. So we just want it. Or, you know, we've gone in because we created a monster and now we've realised we've got to put it down. You know, it's not doing what we want it to do. And it just, I couldn't get my head around the fact that it was so necessary to be so deceitful around what was really going on. And that basically, as a world, we were so willing to just take what we were being fed without questioning it.
0: I love that where you stood when you asked that question. I think that's really, really important. like, yes, we are doing this thing. Yes, we're all committed to this thing. We're sitting in this room because of this thing. Out of genuine curiosity and trying to Mm. find a way that is possibly less destructive from here, can you answer this question for me? You're not Mm. trying to shoot him down. You're not trying to knock him off at the knees. You're just like, is there another way, like just a place of actually genuine curiosity for the betterment of, of everyone to not accept the way we've always done things that the way we'll always do things, actually knowing there might be a better way to do things. And it starts with answering this question. And I think that's an extraordinary place to stand as someone who's looking to represent the public and looking to be in in a seat of parliament. And and like far out, man. (laughs) I don't know if you saw any of the the debate. Well, we're recording this the day after the um, religious freedom bill last night. We're yet to know how it ends up and what happens with it in the Senate. but. The debate went on until, you know, 3, 4 in the morning. But mm. if anyone's got any doubt that you can stand up there and t- have a good solid chat to, you know, the member from whatever, like, she stared down Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> She'll be fine. <laughs> you know? That's yeah. amazing. That's just what a skill set. So... I'd love to get back to the the McGrath Foundation. So you're at the end of your mat leave. Your big job's on the way. Hey, kids, we're moving to New York. Yeah, I'm going big smoke PR. The package. We're going first class. We're living in the company apartment. It's two blocks down from here. Kids are going to go to this school in Brooklyn. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. And then the phone call comes.
2: Yeah, so I was literally... Ironically, it was my daughter's christening the day that Jane passed away. So I literally came out of the church from my daughter's christening and had a message from a friend saying, Jane's passed. And I remember being quite shell-shocked because I knew she'd been unwell, but I think like most Australians, I just think we believed she would beat it. And so, you know, that was the first sort of, 24 hours the next morning I actually was sitting on the edge of a swimming pool with my son who was then James must have been I guess four or five he was doing his swimming lesson and my phone rang and it was a lady called Michaela Durant who had only relatively recently been employed by the foundation to start to help them build what a breast care nurse program might look like and it was only her in the office and she rang me and said look you know I've been told that if I needed any help, I should call you and you'd tell me what to do. And this is what's happening. The phones are going crazy. Channel seven's here, channel nine's here. What do I do? And I said to her, okay, so what we need to do, write a statement, put it up on the website, you know, divert your phones, you know, and these are the, and, and I sort of was sitting on the edge of the pool kind of going, I need to help, but I have to be respectful about how I help. Anyway, so I hung up. She said, right, right, got it. Statement, phones, bank accounts, got it, got it. And then literally we hung up and 10 minutes later she rang me back and goes, what did you say I'm writing? What's that thing I've got to write? And I just said, to, I, I said, right, okay, put the phones to the answering service. I'll be there in half an hour and we'll get through this together. Whipped my son out of the pool, rang a girlfriend, ended up leaving my three kids with my girlfriend for about five days. Ah. And I went into the foundation and just helped the team get through Jane's funeral. Jane's, she died on a Sunday and the funeral was on the Wednesday. So it was a really tight turnaround. And then Tracy Bevan, who was also working at the foundation at the time, went to the UK. She flew out to the UK on the Wednesday afternoon and had some time over there in, with her grief. And, and Glenn packed up his kids and went out west to his family's farm out the other side of Burke. And so I just stayed in situ to kind of help this tiny organisation. You know, at the time, OSHA they didn't have networked computers. And we were getting, I think the day after Jane died, over a million and a half dollars was donated to the foundation in the space of 12, 24 hours, which was phenomenal. Yeah. But brought with it a whole heap of, well, how's this being receipted? You know, like where, yeah. where is it going? Because we, we've got to suddenly, all this accountability comes with it. So six weeks later, Glenn came back, Tracy came back, And by that stage, I think even though I'd been asked to be there previously and I'd said no, spending that six weeks right at the coalface, I developed this intense sense that I had to try and do what Jane had set about to do. The idea she'd had was a good one, that families would benefit from access to a breast care nurse, that she'd had the courage and the capacity during her whole heartbreaking experience to recognise that within her experience there was an opportunity to help others. And honestly, I think it probably was an expression of grief for me that I wanted to see what she had started actually get done and become successful. So, yeah, I signed on at the McGrath Foundation as CEO. I actually started on my birthday, the 5th of September. I drove out to Mudgee for my first official function and spoke at this fundraising event and felt like for the first time I gave voice to what, you know, Jane had wanted to create. We had three McGraw Breast Care nurses at the time. Six years later, when I left, we had 100 McGraw Breast Care nurses spread right across the country, supporting over 25,000 families. And every day I turned up in that job, I turned up because I knew that this was a moment in time when people were coming together to change, fundamentally change our healthcare system in Australia.
0: Which is no easy feat to suddenly bring in this. When you get to the spreadsheet wizards at the at the top floor of any kind of healthcare organisation, be it a hospital or an insurance company or whatever, there'll be a line item on the spreadsheet. are like, what? Hang on, that wasn't there last year. Why do we now need more of these people? Yeah. How do you try to convince the, at the end of the day, a specialised breast care nurse is uh, is a highly skilled, highly trained, I'd like to think well-paid person and paid because they make uh, a great difference in people's lives and the lives of their families, of the people they're treating. How do you then try to convince the the spreadsheet gatekeepers in these uh, institutions that it's worth the investment?
2: It was really, really tough. I'm not going (laughs) to lie because I think, you know, this was also one of the at the first cases where a significant amount of federal funding was subsequently secured to roll roll out a health service program where health services are traditionally controlled and delivered by state governments you know so i think what it took from our perspective is at the federal level we worked very hard to build Um, bipartisan consensus around the value that something like this could create in the community. So we ended up in a situation where both of the major parties at the time had committed to funding us to roll this program out. And then literally when it came to getting those nurses on the ground in the communities, it was a day-by-day battle because we'd ring an area health service and say, look, we've identified, you have the population demographics that show that you have a high rate of breast cancer within your communities and a breast care nurse could help here. And the hospital would say well no we don't need a nurse we need a mammogram machine or we need a radiography machine so yeah we'll take your money but we're going to put it into the machine and then we'd have to go well no you're not getting the money like the money comes with the nurse or there is no money and so those first 32 nurses that rolled out in the year after jane passed away every single one of them was a fight like it really was a no this is the ground we're holding this is the ground we're pursuing these are the people we want to see employed. And then, actually, at the end of that three years of funding, the government tried to withdraw the funding because what we hadn't read in the fine print is what, that it was a one-off grant. And so I ended up finding myself...
0: Hang on, did you say three years? What's the election cycle in our country yeah, exactly. again? <laughs> is it?
2: exactly. Oh, that's right, it's three years. Three years, yeah. And so I got some again... Oh, I'm in. so
0: cynical about this stuff, Kylie. <laughs> it just oh, it makes my colon twitch i swear
2: i I think you have reason to be osha because and and this is why i think i do have while i haven't been a politician i have very clear perspective on how our political system works
0: you've been a politician since you started working in the at the pr company because at a pr company (laughs) you are pitching your idea to either a newspaper that is leaning this way or that way generally centrist or leaning to the right uh, left one right so you're you're pitching your idea to a politically skewed editor all right, you're trying to get your story into their paper, into the valuable front first pages of it. So you're in with the politics there. You're in with the politics in your if you don't get to be a candidate for an international head of an office at a global PR firm without being good at dealing with politics in an, a a high stakes, high tension, high reward office environment. Politics you've had to do when you, you know, talking to Donald Rumsfeld. The politics trying to get people over the line with local healthcare providers you'd been a politician this whole time. You just don't have MP at the end of your name.
2: Oh, my gosh. I'm never going to be able to look at myself in the same way. I think, yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because actually I fundamentally see myself, if you had to put a label on me, I'd say what I am is I'm a restless advocate. To say to me, and I would say for the first year or so, 2 years at the McGraw Foundation. The most common phrase I heard was you can't do that. It won't work that way. No, that's not possible. They were the three things that keep people kept saying to me, and I I just kept turning up going why not? Why is that not possible? You know, why can't we have nurses in area health services across the country in pink shirts so that people can build a connection with that community
0: amazing branding honestly it's freaking incredible branding it is unbelievable branding
2: yeah and it really it became but it's unbelievable branding because it's come to stand for something so much bigger than what it actually is yeah
0: you made the meaning you made the meaning connection very very quickly right in those first six weeks you did it yeah and that's still to this day you know 15 years later it's still there yeah it's huge
2: So if I just come back, so the story about the end of the, and you're right, you need to be cynical in politics, and I think I would say this to Australians even today, beware the politician who comes out making promises in the lead up to an election, because nine out of ten of those promises are going to be offered as some sort of sweetener to get your vote. And, you know, that's where we are in this country at the moment, and, you know, we only have to look at, you mentioned the religious discrimination bill that's been debated overnight in the House of Reps. I'm angry this morning that, you know, our Prime Minister says that that legislation has to be passed because he promised it. So he's corralled his party room and said, we promised we'd get this through, we have to get this through. My response to that is, what about all the other promises? What about the Federal Integrity Commission? What about the $63 million you promised for cystic fibrosis research that hasn't turned up? What about faster action on climate? What about better treatment of women? All those things have just been ditched. But this one thing is the thing that he's held our parliament back till 5am in the morning debating. And I'm like, who are you kidding? So, sorry, that's a bit tangential, but it comes back to me. I agree with you. I think beware politicians who... You know, come bearing gifts in the lead up to an election. In our case at the McGrath Foundation, sure enough, as it came to the end of the three years, the government wanted to remove the funding, and I got summoned to a meeting with the then Health Minister gentleman by the name of Peter Dutton at Macquarie Street. And I was told our funding would not be renewed, that the funding was being moved into other areas. What's it like what's he like in the room?
0: Are you taller than him? No,
2: he's tall. He's tall.
0: He strikes me as like, he's old school Queensland police when you had to be like 6'4 or something. Like, he's big.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the men involved in politics at the moment at the federal level are tall. You know, like the gentleman I'm running against in the seat here, Trent Zimmerman, Trent's tall.
0: What's it like when you meet Peter Dutton? What's it like when you go in the room with him? What kind of human is he?
2: Uh, So I would describe Peter Dutton as someone who's incredibly composed. So... I've had lots of meeting with lots of politicians in my life, but walking into a room to meet Peter was, it was a very calm room. There was a very strong sense of what each person in the room was there to do. You know, he wasn't at all flippant. He was very direct in the way he communicates and he did not hesitate. There was no beating around the bush. He didn't try and make me feel good about it or anything else. He just came straight to the point and said that the funding would be removed from the McGrath Foundation, that breast cancer had enough and the money needed to go elsewhere. And so I obviously went in to bat for the foundation and talked about what we have been able to do, the number of nurses that were out there, the families that were being supported... But at the time, it, was, it seemed to me that he had made up his mind that no, not, not for any reason, not based on any advice he'd received from a health department or anybody else externally. It was just that in his role, in this capacity as this minister, this was the decision he wanted to make. And so we got to the end of the conversation, Osher, and I just, I don't know what came over me, but I turned to him and I said, well, that, okay, thank you for your time today. And I looked at his staffer and I said, look, if you can please let me know where we should send the names of all of the CEOs for the area health services that you'll be pulling this funding from and where you would like me to provide you for the contact details for all of those local papers and those local news agencies so that you can reach out to them and let them know that you're pulling the funding, I'm very happy to supply you with that list. And the room just went silent. And Minister Dutton looked at me and he said, no, you can't do that. And I said, I beg your pardon? He said, you know, you're taking the nurses out. And I was like, no, but it's your funding, Minister. It's your funding. So you can let the communities know you're pulling your funding. And needless to say, by the end of the meeting, the funding had been re-secured for another Three years for the McGrath Foundation. So it kind of.
0: <laughs> i just so you know, like I've had to take my feet off the floor because I'm doing that little <laughs> leggy kick that my little Wolfie does when I tell him that you know we're going to go on the bike and have an adventure. The whole time he told me that I'm doing like air kicks in the air. I'm just so gleefully excited that you.
2: So wow, what a move! Did, were you standing up? Was like this the end of the meeting? You standing up? This is the goodbye. This was well actually so then what was particularly funny is no we didn't stand up, we were sitting op- sitting opposite each other. Wow.
1: And it was,
2: I guess it was Power City, you know, its upright yeah. backs, its expanded yeah, chests. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't aggressive. I was no. just held my space. But what was funny is when we when the meeting came to an end, as we stood up and he shook my hand, and I think there was sincere respect from him to me at that point in time. <laughs> and he actually said to me, do you ever do Q&A on the ABC? And I said, oh, no, I, you know, like I'm too busy working. And he goes, good. And I was like, I beg your pardon? He said, I don't ever want to come up against you on that show. And I was like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) boom, and, you know, walked out and had a good laugh. But to me, my experience in that political frame is that you do have to be able to Call stuff out and stand toe to toe and be prepared to fight for what you believe in, and you may not always win. i mean I'm fortunate that to date, everything I've kind of turned my hand to, we actually have ended up winning in one you know some way, shape, or fashion, but you know who knows what will happen <laughs> into the future?
0: I didn't think it could be better than the Rummersfeld story, but it just got better. <laughs> and i'm sure there's more to come (laughs) my god this is the best i'm so excited so now you're running as the independent candidate for north sydney which is a um i'm sure there's these sorts of seats all over the country it's like a this is a liberal seat that's what it is it's a liberal seat died in the wall it's been you know just the way that the generations work and people who live and move and stay in the area through generational transfer of wealth etc it's always been that seat you've said publicly that Mr Zimmerman, the Liberal Party uh, candidate, claims to speak for the people of of North Sydney. As a person from North Sydney, you, you don't believe that they do reflect the values of the community. How have the values of the community, what's changed? Has the values of the party changed or the values of the community changed?
2: So I think you're right, Osha. So it, the North Sydney seat's been around for about 100 years and, and for all but six of those years, It's been held by the Liberal Party. It's a pretty
0: good batting average.
2: It's a pretty good batting average. In the six years that it wasn't held by the Liberal Party, interestingly, it was held by an independent, an amazing man called Ted Mack, who is pretty much regarded as the father of independence and was renowned for integrity and, you know, community advocacy. To answer your question, I actually do think it's the political system that has changed fundamentally. And I think it's probably like You've no doubt heard the story about the frog in the pot of water. You know, if you put a frog in a cold pot of water and turn the heat up under it slowly, it won't jump out. It will actually end up boiling to death because it doesn't realise the environment around it has changed. So but if he jumps
0: into a boiling pot, he'll jump straight out. Straight, jump
2: straight back out, yeah. In our case, I think that our political system has been drifting over a number of years now and... We are just now hitting that point where the water around ourselves as a community and the way our politicians are behaving—it's at boiling point.
0: And it's an amazing metaphor because the death of amphibians is one of the most terrifying red flags caused by the warming planet and the warming water. You know, like how are you fishing kingfish in Tasmania? Yeah. Why are there tropical starfish on Stradbroke Island? Well, hang on—they're halfway down the Central Coast. It's amazing and yeah. frightful, but mm. yes, it's great. So we're just starting to, the bubbles are starting to form on the sides of the pot. Is that what's happening?
2: Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that there is this real moment in time. To me, what is, what is fundamentally failing our society is that somehow, and I'm responsible for this, Sasha, you're responsible for this. Anybody who's been of a voting age in the last, in my case, you know, 32 years, we've enabled this system to create itself. And the system is structured in a way that there are two major parties who have no interest in working together to come to the best possible solutions for our country. Their only interest is in either winning or losing. It's very combative in Canberra at the moment. And I don't know if it's always been like that, but I think definitely in this last six years, and um, we've seen it more often than not, that really sensible. I mean, you look at Zali Stegall's climate bills, for example. They were really good. That's really good proposed legislative reform. It's been created by an independent who has no vested interest in either party. Her focus is on the community in our country. She took it to them ready-made, yet because it wasn't a Liberal Party idea or a Labor Party idea, they didn't let it through the House. Same with Helen Haynes' Integrity Commission work. I mean, that legislation is extraordinary. It is best in class globally. She had the best minds in our country work on that. She took that legislative proposal to the House, but because it wasn't a Liberal idea or a Labor idea, it didn't get the traction. And that has got to stop. I mean, you know, I I fundamentally believe politics is about the people. And when the Constitution of Australia was first written, there were no political parties. The Constitution of Australia was created to enable all communities to send a representative from themselves to a common meeting place to then discuss what was most important to the country and form a consensus around which way we wanted to go. Over time, parties have drifted into it. Someone asked me last night, why did I think parties came to be? I think they probably did come to be to make life a bit easier for people. You know, not everybody wanted to read every piece of legislation. So if you find someone you tend to agree with, well, you read that one, I'll read the next one. And that was fine for a while because you still had discourse and you still had discussion. But this last six years of politics, there's been no constructive discourse or discussion between those two major parties and we need to stand up right now and say you are not behaving in a way that befits our nation. These are not the conversations we want to see had in this chamber and in this building on our behalf. And therefore, we're stepping back into the conversation. You can step back now. Thank you, but time for you to step back.
0: You mentioned two really powerful bills from, I'm happy to say, two previous guests of this podcast. You've mentioned two really powerful bills there. And when was the last time we actually saw integrity at the top level of Australian politics? And why do we need now, in a week that we've seen Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins front the National Press Club, devastatingly brilliantly, why now is integrity the number one thing that our country needs to focus on?
2: Such a good question, Osha. And I think federal politics for a really long time, I probably have been in that group of Australians who kind of thought as long as the job was getting done, I could make the rest happen around the outside of it. So I probably haven't looked at that issue of integrity I think the question I asked I often say to people when was the last time you felt inspired by our leaders you know what what were the moments that have inspired you to be bigger and better and I actually don't know that I have I mean obviously there are moments like I think Julia Gillard's misogyny speech was every person you know every woman in the country stood up and fist-pumped behind that but in terms of actual legislative reform and feeling like we're moving on really big important things maybe the NDIS you know that was a really big important thing I think when we did see that reform um, where there was a carbon price introduced into Australia you know we are the only and you would know this better than me we're the only nation in the world to wind back a carbon tax you know it was working for the very short period of time it was in it Number was one number one <laughs> number one so, it's definitely not been there for, it definitely in this last six years, it has mm. just failed to materialise. And I think for me, it's probably easier, maybe this is the negativity bias, it's easier for me to identify those moments that really made me feel its lack of presence. And yeah. that was things like Christian Porter's blind trust and the fact that when they tried to refer him to the privileges committee, the party blocked the referral, so he didn't even get referred to the Privileges Committee. You know, I think it's things like when you have a state premier, regardless of what you what you think of Premier Berejiklian and all the great stuff she did, for her to be able to come out and without even blinking go pork barrelling is just part of the system, everybody does it, it really, they're the moments that I think for me kind of made me go hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. You know, I knew it was not great, but... In the business world, that stuff would not be accepted. You'd be fired. You'd be dismissed. You'd be.
0: And that's the thing. I remember, like when you, there were stories of uh, a particular party leader turning up drunk to work. If I turned up drunk to work, it would be, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Masked Singer. I'm Dan McPherson. That would that that would be it. It'd be over. Yeah. It'd be like a click of a finger and the next episode would be somebody else. Mm. That would be it. You did ask about, um, and I just don't want to alienate people here. I want to be sure that, you know, we're talking about what's in our hearts as a nation. Mm. All right. You asked about what was the last time, you know, you felt inspired and and it's, and I talk about this all the time and that when I think about, and as much as I disagree with so many policies of that government, John Howard taking guns off the street of our nation was one of the greatest, greatest things that ever happened. You look at our refugee clusterfuck at the moment and the aforementioned Peter Dutton's involvement and and the money that we're wasting on imprisoning children. It was the Liberal Party that saved thousands of Vietnamese refugees in the 70s, thousands. We airlifted them mm-hmm. to safety and gave and born a community and enriched our country with Thoughts and ideas and food and culture and like the the Liberal Party in Australia has a history of doing colossal things oh, yeah. that still affect true us. True leadership,
2: statesmanship,
0: true moments like mm. that really, really are they're possible by both parties. You yeah. mentioned the NDI, the NDIS. it's kind of and it's kind of in the independent realm. The NDIS thing came across the line. It was independent senators that helped craft that and got it over the line. And so the the role of independence is so vitally important as we move forward, when it comes to climate, I mean, a liberal party in Australia, this is for people listening overseas, not liberal, uh, not American liberal, It's, uh, it's small business, it's growth, it's jobs and growth. You know, we're not idiots. When we see the climate projections and the impacts upon our economies, upon our real estate prices, upon our insurance prices, what do the people of North Sydney, the, the electorate you're, you're looking to represent, how do they feel about climate?
2: So one of the most important things about running as an independent is that I am free to listen to the people who I'm seeking to represent, you know, and the policies will be very much created from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And actually what I've found fascinating Osha is is that there are so many incredible people across this community who are actually already working in the space of renewable and sustainable energy and in fact last Tuesday I had a roundtable discussion with 25 CEOs and founders of businesses that are all directly working in renewable and sustainable energy to understand from them what they need more of And, you know, resoundingly, the message that came back is that actually they're happy to do the work. Like they love what they're doing. They believe in what they're doing. They know it can work, but they need the federal government to get out of the way (laughs) in many ways.
0: Yeah, we're busy trying to make billions of dollars here. Correct. We're busy reinventing. We are the Rockefellers inventing petrol distribution systems in the 1800s, and we're about to all go to the moon in Lambos powered by electricity. Can you please get out of the way?
2: Correct. Can you please stop (laughs) subsidising old technology? You know, instead, back the startups you know where's the investment in in the startup infrastructure here in australia to really back these new businesses in what are we doing to make sure that stuff is developed here stays here and we become Mm -hmm. the global superpowers in the manufacturing of it and the exporting of it i mean you know that fundamentally the technology behind a solar cell was developed here by the university of new south wales yet do we make solar panels in australia no no So it's kind of like we have the capacity to be a renewable energy superpower, but we need our federal government to send very clear signals to both our domestic market and our international market that that's the way we're moving and that, yeah, we've done digging stuff out of the ground. We've dug enough. We can stop digging. We can phase it out. And as we phase it out, we bring in the next wave and everybody moves on to a new era of life.
0: Digging stuff out of the ground has given us the country we live in. 100%. And it, it, I have grown up and benefited from the the healthcare, the infrastructure, the education, the defence. Th- these are all things that have been largely made possible by digging stuff out of the ground. When we say renewable energy superpower, what that really means, I know you know, I don't think I'm just saying something too far. Is like it means that the way we live stays kind of the way we live and might even get a whole lot better. All right but digging stuff out of the ground will not be here in 10 years the way it is right now. And if we're not ready, the health, the education, the transport, the defense, like all those things will suffer. Mm. And that's the thing I think that there's the line that people don't really put together, that the world, as you mentioned, the world has already flicked the switch. They're already moving. And if we're not moving with it, we are Venezuela. And as I love, I have great Venezuelan friends. I don't want to end up there. You know, you know. I don't. I don't want to take a weapon to get my groceries.
2: <laughs> no, I, and I think actually, you know, that's a really important point because. In prior elections, like we've seen the last few elections, people have said, oh, it's going to be about climate. But at the end of the day, it hasn't been climate that's kicked over the votes. You know, there's then been an issue about a sense of loss of security or, you know, economic failure or tax reform. My
0: franking credits, Collie. Don't come for my franking
2: credits. (laughs) Exactly. Who's frank? Uh, But I think what's really interesting for me about the debate we're having this time, Osher, is that this is not a debate even though it should be, and it should be enough, this is not just a debate about what we need as a healthy climate and environment anymore. This is also a debate about what we need as a healthy economy and Mm -hmm. a country. And I think that's the big switch that's been flicked this time, is people are actually prepared to say, from an economic point of view, I'm not happy for us to continue to rely on this as a strategy. And, you know, I'm a pretty big thinker and I actually lament the role that we are continuing to play and and you hear it all the time, you know, oh, we're not such big emitters, you know, we're not really part of the problem. We're the third largest exporter of fossil fuels on the planet. So if we export it and somebody else burns it or uses it, aren't we partially responsible for the creation of those emissions?
0: I just manufacture the weapons, I don't shoot them.
2: Yeah, and the lost opportunity in that to me is that if we already have that much influence in those countries, and we have those relationships, and we know the capacity they're trying to build, why wouldn't we be working with them to hothouse them to help them completely step over fossil fuels and go straight to clean energy sources? Why make them drag through the thirty or fifty years that we have? And as you said, I'm, I Kuna Baburin, you know, there's lots of. My friends who work in the mines who have had great careers through it. towns that, you know, have really relied. The pilgar is an area where they're still looking at trying to get gas out of the ground. So I understand it is very real. The economic benefit to regional and rural communities of that particular sector is very real. And that's why I think we need to face up to it as it needs to be a transition. We can't just stop and start something. But we can't transition unless we've got a very clear plan. So what's the plan? And this whole talk of net zero by 2050, we cannot fall for that. That's 10 elections away. The people telling us that may not even be here. So to me, the question is, what are we doing by 2025? What are we doing by 2028? What are we doing by 2031? What are we doing by 2035? And let's actually break this down and as a community work together to re-gear ourselves. And I think that's super exciting.
0: Just taking a moment away from Kylie to let you know that we do have some live shows on the way. It's been way too long since we've seen each other. I was going to turn around, I really was, as soon as after Wolfie got born, I was going to turn around and just start making live podcasts a regular part of the plan and COVID. So... Really stoked that we can finally get to do it. We're we're doing a test run. We're gonna hope fingers crossed that you wanna come along and be a part of it so we can show to the the, the people that hold the the purse strings. In our, in our business here that like you know it's worth spending money on, on planes and venues because people want to come it would be great so we'd really love to do heaps of these so please get around these shows Melbourne April 3rd we're doing two shows Brisbane April 22nd we're doing two shows now Melbourne is on sale now right now osherginzberg.com Brisbane won't be on sale until March the 8th so take out your phone or get your phone in your hand if you are listening to a podcast just type it in your calendar, March 8th, buy tickets, oshiginsburgcom and click on live when you get there. And uh, we will see you. Now, both gigs on in each city, so we're doing an early and a late, well, one's four and one's seven, I think, in one city, so early and late. Both gigs have different guests, so they're completely different shows. So if you wanted, you could come to both shows. And I would love to, absolutely love for you to come along and I can't wait to see you it's been way 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 too long now there are a bunch of people that do make this show Rachel Barrett is one of the incredible people who makes this show she is also producing the entire live experience and I need to pay people like Rachel and people like Andy and Bree who helped me make this show So I've got to play some ads here now if you'd like to get a version of this show without the ads so you can become a double winner there so a you get to hear the show with no commercials but b you also get that warm fuzzy feeling that you are helping put food in Andy Ma's fridge you are feeding Rachel Barrett's children all right you are making sure that Brie Steele is putting money away for her super. You are helping the team live an amazing life and that would be amazing. It's like, it starts at five bucks a month. There's a few tiers there. Five bucks a month is about, like if you saw me in the street and I said, oh man, I'm stinging for a coffee and you went, fuck, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. It's around five bucks or a smoothie or whatever. If you think you would buy me a cup of coffee if you saw me in the out, that's all I'm asking for once a month. And you get this podcast ad free. Patreon.com slash Osha, if that sounds like a good deal. There's a few tiers there. We're looking at putting some video episodes up there as well. Uh, so until you're in that exclusive feed club, until you've got that super special RSS coming your way, we've got to pay the bills. So here's some ads, and then we're we'll back with Kylie in just a moment.
1: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some
2: added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide
1: assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better?
0: one of uh, my favorite quotes from me is you have said that the government is protecting the vhs economy while the rest of the world has moved to live streaming this was in reference to to energy policy my eldest might have seen a vhs tape at some point in her life she might remember dvds but her life everything is there when she wants to watch it yeah Actually, you
2: know <laughs> i should this is uh, the funny story on that is that that was yeah, something that just came that, you know, I, I love to tell stories in ways that people can hopefully understand it by simplifying it. You
0: might have to go into a career in marketing, Kylie. I <laughs> think you might have you might have a role in PR. I don't know, I don't know. I don't know. Just think you've got an idea.
2: <laughs> well, and I don't I offer this because I just think it's important that we are able to laugh at ourselves. The first time I used that phrase, I actually got a call from someone who is helping me kind of make sure that I, I keep communicating in a way that makes sense. And his, his comment to me was, oh, my God, Kylie. He said, most of the young voters won't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> he said, I'm going to have to go and ask my daughter if she knows what a VHS is. <laughs> and I was like, well, if they don't know, they'll know now. So that's okay.
0: But it's a, it's a really great analogy. It's a, a similar thing was like you're trying to be sure that CD manufacturing continues in this country. Mm. And it's like, what? I stream everything. Mm. Like there's no, Then the world has moved away and you know, it's landfill now. Mm. Forget it. Mm. And and unfortunately, as we talked earlier, like there's these systems, these ancient systems that still exist because no one's questioned them. No one's looked them in the eye and gone, yes, this is the way it's always been done. Does that mean it's the best thing for us to do from here? And that's that takes leadership and it takes a bra- a brave person to ask those questions. One of the things that I get doing this show, and I've been doing this show for like eight years now, I speak to people who I'm like, my God, if only you would run for politics. And uh, either I ask them on, on the show or off the show. And the general response is like, well, I don't want my life destroyed. Often I feel that this is a system, as you mentioned, this is a system that is largely populated by ex-students of Sydney Boys High or, you know, one or two particular universities in the country. They're all white. They're all men. And, you know, they all have known each other since high school. And if you're not part of that team, you get destroyed, in public. And some of the best leaders in that country, the greatest leaders would never go near politics because of what it does to them, their family, their ability to ever, you know, be effective. A high, high, high profile version of this would be what happened with Peter Garrett. Why, why have you gone? I know what it takes. I know what's at stake. I know what this will do to me and my family. Why have you gone? Yep. I'm going to run.
2: Because we have to, you know, it, the bottom line is I accept the role that I've played in enabling this system to become a reality. So I, do, I accept my responsibility around that. But in accepting that, what I also do is give myself permission to say I'm not happy with how it is and if I'm not happy, I need to step up and say this can be done differently. Let's work to make this a different outcome. Someone asked me last night at a community event, Osher, if I was frightened, you know, like if I was well, and I don't think they use the word frightened. I think they use the word, you know, it's scared. Does it scare you? The thought of going to Canberra and trying to get stuff done. And my response to that was, I'm only human. And I didn't foresee this for myself. I didn't aspire. I would never have woken up in a morning. (laughs) It would never have happened in my life that I would wake up one morning and go, I'm going to run for politics. I'm going to be a federal parliamentarian. But what's worked for me here is that like so much of the other stuff I've done and I know has achieved extraordinary results, there is a group of people across this community who believe things can be done better and that we have the power to do that. They asked me, to run with them. They asked me to step up and speak for them. And so while I might, I am the person out the front on this, this is very much a community push to say, we are done being treated like this when it comes to our political vote. The North Sydney vote in the last 12 months was used to block Zali Stegel's climate bills. It was used to block the referral of Christian Porter to the Privileges Committee. It was used to block debate around Helen's integrity bills. If you took those three decisions out to the community and said to them, here's our vote, which way do you want to cast it? I can guarantee you that the people of North Sydney would have said, let the climate bills be debated. Absolutely, Christian Porter should face the music. Let the integrity bills be debated. And that's the voice I'm trying to bring back here. And I don't know where it's going to go, Osha. I really don't. I know there's an end date that there'll be an election, and I understand that, for so many people, the proof of whether this has been a success or not will be in whether I make it to Canberra. And don't get me wrong, I want to go to Canberra. This is very much a job that I want to do. But to be completely honest with you, I think every day we turn up and provide an opportunity for people to discuss what's going on in that level and put a little bit of pressure around it's, it's a win. We're already winning. Morrison went to Glasgow, he was not going to go. That, you know, Liberal National Party adopted Net Zero by 2050. They were not going to adopt Net Zero by 2050. You know, we've seen Liberals in the last six months cross the floor. Bridget Archer stepped up and started crossing the floor. We are winning already. And I just, to me, that's so exciting because if that's what we can do from on the edges of the system imagine how much more constructive and progressive our way of doing government is going to be with a stronger, bigger, sensible crossbench to bring those two parties back into the table to have a discussion.
0: It's incredible hearing you frame the parliamentary votes in the, the voice of the actual person walking down the street in Neutral Bay, right? And I just never thought of it like that before. Our current member, Dave Sharma, he crossed the floor last night, protections for transgender kids in um I still don't as far as religious discrimination goes uh, okay to quite our prime minister I disagree with the premise of the question I disagree that we even need this bill anyway because if I think he knows he's you know he's had a, his voting on climate etc is another story but I think he knows that if he were to walk down the street in his electorate and say I voted to bully transgender kids the people in his in the electorate will be like, uh, you what, pardon? Because mm. that's not representative of us as a community. Mm. And to think about how your local parliamentarian has voted in your name and what that vote did, if their vote was the one or one of the few that got them over the line, if that's not how you feel about the world, think about where your vote goes next time. Mm. And that is a huge, huge, huge message, Kylie, and I'm so grateful that you, you, you talked about that. You talked about your kids a few times and I, and I wanted to just kind of reflect, you you mentioned, you you said, I want to get back to Canberra and I'm thinking, it's because you did have a really good first year there. Just remember what happened in your first year there last time. Okay. Just remember, (laughs) (laughs) try to, try to keep a lid on it. Sure, party, important, important, but you know, remember what happened last time. At what point in your motherhood journey did you go, holy shit, my mum did this when she was 18. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. How And dad was 21. How did, What?
2: So, after my first child was born, so as I said, my eldest son is now 19. One of the first things I did, so, you know, I have this amazing experience, this whole pregnancy, this little creature has been created in some amazing way and put into my arms. And it seriously was within the first six hours of his life, Osha, I <laughs> rang my mother and said, I'm sorry. And she said, What? And I said, I am just so sorry. I get it. I finally get how much you love me. And I was 31 at the time, 32. Russia. So I think that, you know, it's all relative. And, you know, you just mentioned my kids. Someone asked me last night, what do they think of what I'm doing? And my comment was, "We, my children are without a doubt the most important thing I've ever done. And I'm incredibly proud of them. They are their own individual selves they have their own stuff going on. I, they're not surprised by what I'm doing. You know, when I told them I was, I wanted to do it, I asked if they would, you know, if they were okay if I did it. My son responded by, you know, of course, you're going to do it, mum. That's what you do. You go and fight the fights that need to be fought. So, of course, we've got your back. But actually, my comment last night was, I think it will be when they themselves are 50, they've got their own teenagers. They're trying to keep a job going and, you know, food in the fridge. And they're going to turn around and go, are you kidding me? Our mother went into federal politics at this stage (laughs) in her life. And I think that that's perspective and that's how it should be. I don't want my kids to have to stand toe-to-toe with the system we're currently standing toe-to-toe with
0: and you have uh, you have one son you have two daughters we have uh, one of each we have a nearly 18 year old daughter and a and a 2 and a bit year old son over the course of your career from either when you were a senior at university and there were you know first years coming in or when you started at uh, Edelman or you know through McGrath when young women came into your organization and started working in your team as the new new arrivals Was there a lesson you said to them and a a constant lesson and a constant advice that you gave these young women on their first few weeks in?
2: Oh, man, there's so much attention at the moment being paid to the way that men and women work together, either side to side or within an organisational structure. And I think, you know, for me, I did come through the commercial sector in the 90s and the early 2000s. And I think While I am incredibly grateful for my career, in hindsight, if it was happening now, there probably would have been very many circumstances where someone would have said, well, that's inappropriate. You know, they shouldn't have spoken to you about that or you shouldn't have had to make that compromise. So being able to mentor younger people as they come in to any working environment is something I love. I think my advice, whether they are male or female, has actually always being the same, which is do the best work that you can do within the capacity that you have to give and the rest will take care of itself. And my other piece of advice, always employ people that are smarter than you because <laughs> they, they do well and, and you look, you know, even stronger because of that. So I really think it is important for, we still have, so. and one of the issues that I'm very keen to help address or help our society address we still have a disproportionate and skewed version of equality as it comes to our workplace and family raising and I am really keen if I'm given the opportunity to go to Canberra I am very keen to be a major voice in driving a conversation around why don't we have 12 months of maternity leave that is shared by both parents You know, dad should be able to take six months paid as well as mum can take six months paid. Why don't we have a system of early childhood education and care in this country that guarantees families access to that from the time their baby is, their toddler is 12 months old and onwards to ensure that whatever you need to do to be the best version of yourself, you're able to access that. You know, that it's not childcare keeping women out of their workforce or holding families back. Because I do think, and, and maybe this is the other piece about me, Osha, I feel like we're at a moment in time in our society where we have an opportunity to actually mature as a nation. There are so many really big issues facing us, you know, who are we, what do we stand for, what do we want to stand for into the future? And if we can look at this moment in time and go, you know what, We're now prepared to say we're a nation that's actually 65,000 years old and we're going to embrace everything that that enables us to be. We are a nation that does believe in equality for all and we're going to embrace everything that enables us to be. We are a nation that believes in innovation and, you know, not settling for a status quo and we're going to embrace everything that's going to be. To me, that's the role of a really strong, healthy federal government. Lead. Show us where we're going. Lead us, provide us with some guide rails to get us there. Coordinate. So, you know, where you can find who's doing it best and then leverage it. Let's not all keep having to make the same mistakes. And then, when necessary, provide funding to stimulate. And if that was what our federal government was doing, lead, coordinate, stimulate, I think we'd be a completely different country.
0: If I only lived in your part of the city... <laughs> but I know people that do. And I'm, I'm so grateful that I had the chance to, to speak to you because the, it, it's hard to not be cynical about Australian politics. It's hard to not be so beaten down by the constant amount of dead cats being thrown at you. Like, come on, stop jingling the car keys in front of the kids. There's Things going on back here that we really, really, really need to talk about. Mm. I'm fuming that it took however many hours of the eight sitting days left till August. If I had eight days of work till August, I would not be able to afford my mortgage. But, you know, that's how many sitting days. I don't understand how that's even possible, but they wasted 14 hours on this. There's that many other things I could have spent talking about last night that really, really need to get done right now. But they spent all this time faffing around and it really fucks me off. So to know that someone like you is willing to go in there, willing to lead in the way that you're talking about, but also know that you're, if you get in, when you get in, you're walking through that doors going, and if Dutton comes at me, uh, I'm packing heat and he knows it.
2: <laughs> I'm sure there's nothing that can't be settled over a cup of tea, Osha. <laughs>
0: Kylie, you're the best. Thank you so much for making time in a very busy schedule. I'm so grateful I got a chance to speak to you today.
2: I'm so grateful I had a chance to speak to you, Washer. I love listening to your <laughs> conversations. I always get so much out of them. And I just think if the only thing that comes out of today's conversation is it's, it's just one person stops and thinks about the reality that their vote is just as important as anybody else's vote in this country. So my 19-year-old son's vote is as important as the Prime Minister's vote. Use your vote. It is your superpower. Preferences are your superpower. Don't just give it away. It's incredibly valuable and create the country you want to be living in longer term.
0: That was Kylie Tink. She is on Instagram, she's on Twitter, she's online everywhere. Her name is spelt K-Y-L-E-A-T-I-N-K. Kylie Tink, K-Y-L-E-A-T-I-N-K, all one word, on Instagram, on Twitter, and kylytink.com.au. Thanks heaps for being here. Please tell a friend. Uh, it's fantastic if you were to share this show with someone, particularly if you know someone who lives in her electorate. Let them know, hey, did you know this person's running near you? Please come and see us, come to the shows. Uh, Melbourne's on sale right now, Brisbane's on sale March 8th. Tickets are available at osheginsberg.com. Wednesday, we're back here with Australian Olympic cyclist Rachel Malan. It's a great chat. Well worth a listen. I've got a jet. It's uh, rainy, rainy, rainy. I've got a, a, a son that's refusing to nap in the middle of the day, and he's. I've just got a photo sent to me from upstairs where he's literally pinned his grandfather to the couch by falling asleep in his armpit. And I really hope his grandfather had, had just had a wee because he's probably not going to be able to move for a while. <laughs> Ah, oh, buddy, I'll be up in a minute. Thanks, each for listening. I'll see you in Melbourne. I'll see you in Brisbane. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.